Let's pray. Father, we need your Spirit, the author of your Word, to give help and life to your Word today. Help me to make it clear in the way I ought to speak, to not misspeak, to not distort your truth, but to be faithful, Father, with what you've entrusted to us. Grant us hearts that are open and ready to receive your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Frank read for us the first several verses. He was too chicken to read the last two verses. So we'll, we'll actually cover a couple more verses than he did. But just looking at verse 8, we're just jumping right in. Owe no one anything except to love one to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Why does he start out with this owing, this debt language about love, about owing to love one another? Well, he just finished talking about taxes. Yeah, in verse 7. In verse 7, what he said was, um, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and owe nothing, no one anything except to love each other. So thankfully he gets off the subject of taxes and gets onto an easier subject, love, maybe. So when he says, owe no one anything, he isn't saying, don't ever borrow anything. It's not what he's, his point. What he's saying is, don't leave any debts outstanding. Whatever you owe, make sure you, you repay. Pay what you owe. But whereas some debts you can actually pay off, you can actually pay some debts and be done with them. Um, hopefully you pay your 2015 taxes and you're done with that. You, pay, uh, you can pay off your mortgage, perhaps one of these days, um, and you can be done with that. But the one debt you can never pay down is love. You can never finish paying that debt. That's always something that you owe. Um, some don't like speaking of, of loving one another as a debt. They don't like talking about it as an obligation. It, it doesn't sound, uh, it sounds forced. It doesn't sound like, I, I don't want to talk about being obligated to love. If I, if I say to you, well, I, I love you because I have to, that's not very winsome. But as Paul says, the one who loves has fulfilled the law. That is, he's fulfilled God's moral requirement. He's done what God has has required of us. We owe it to God to obey this command. So what Paul is saying is the one who loves another person has done what God requires. And, And when God requires us to love, he means for us to love from the affections of our heart not only to do it out of bare obligation. So that's part of, that comes with the package. He, he requires us to love one another from the heart. Paul already talked about that in some fashion back in a few verses earlier in chapter 12. He said, for example, in verse 9, let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. You could say, let love be from the heart. So it's commanded of us to sincerely love, not just to do it out of duty. Um, he says in verse 10 of chapter 12, love one another with brotherly affection. So he's saying you really need to love with affection, not just going through the motions. 
And in verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So in your loving people, really identify with them and, and, and feel for them. So when Paul and other biblical writers exhort us to love, by definition, he means that we do it out of obedience to God for sure. And, and that includes doing it sincerely from the heart. And as those who are in Christ, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Galatians 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, the, the work of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. And against these things, there is no law. In other words, that's because if we are living by the Spirit in these loving attitudes, we will be fulfilling what God's law requires, which is to love others. Now, in verse 9, we see, we might be wondering, well, he's saying this fulfills the law. Is he talking about the law of Moses? Well, in verse 9, he quotes from the law of Moses. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul gives the reason that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He lists the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, and tenth commandments. And then he says, and any other commandment, because he didn't name them all, all of these are summed up in this, this word, this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this statement itself is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So it comes from the larger context of the Law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. And so we get that summary already from, from the Old Testament as well. Obviously, Paul believes that even though we are not saved by keeping the law, yet the moral requirements of the law are still for us today. They still apply to us in some fashion. Paul doesn't say the the symbolic and the ceremonial aspects of the law still apply to believers. So he's not saying, like, we still continue to offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices. We, we don't have priests in that sense. We don't practice circumcision as a, as a rule for, for God's covenant. We don't um, have food laws, uh, holy, food, holy food laws. We have cleanly food laws, like... like Restaurants are required to keep, but we don't have food laws to say you can't eat uh, crab, you can't eat falcons, you can't eat buzzards, which I'm okay with, not eating buzzards. But you are free to eat buzzards if you so desire. So go to your favorite, your favorite restaurant afterwards and see if they have buzzards and go for it. Uh, he's not saying we still keep those aspects of the law, but the moral commands are still for believers to obey. Now, what does it mean to say that all the commandments are summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Before we answer that, we should ask, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Or to answer that, we also need to ask, who is our neighbor? It seems like somebody asked Jesus that one time, and he said, your neighbor is whoever you run into. Your neighbor is not just somebody who lives next door to you, your neighbor is anybody that you can do good for. So we got that. Your neighbor is anyone you know or who you encounter. What it means to love your neighbor as yourself is is just as you love yourself, love your neighbor. Just as you take care of yourself when you're sick, help your neighbor when they're sick. 
just as you feed yourself, feed your hungry neighbor. As you seek comfort when you're discouraged and sad, encourage or comfort your neighbor. As you don't want your spouse to be unfaithful to you, your spouse is your neighbor, don't be unfaithful to them. As you don't want people to harm or kill you, normally, don't harm them. So again, what does it mean to say that all the commandments are summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Why is that the summary? Well, it means that all of God's commandments are to be done out of love. Out of a sincere desire to do good for others. And it means that if you do love people, you will not do what God says not to do to them. And you will do what he says you should do for them. Love expresses itself in in specific ways defined by God. If you think you are a loving person, but you covet, that is, you want what others have and spend most of your money on your wants and are not generous with your money, you aren't fulfilling God's law. I've spent time with spouse abusers, people who have abused their spouses, and had them in tears saying, I I really love my spouse. By their actions, but their actions say that the feeling that they have for their spouse isn't love, but self-centered control. How often have people been pressured into sexual immorality in the name of love? Because you love me, you must do this. So God defines what love is. It's not just whatever we want it to mean. Now, I also need to speak to a a misconception about what you shall love your neighbor as yourself means. I used to hear this taught um, more several years ago than I've heard it lately, but but it still is worth clarifying. And that is this. The misconception goes like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself means that in order to love others, You need to love yourself first. It goes like this. You you can't love others unless you love yourself. What is often meant by you you can't love others until you love yourself first is something like you have to feel good about yourself before you can love others. You must do loving things for yourself first. But as we've seen, that is not what God means. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can't love others until, unless you have positive psychological self-esteem. In this way of understanding this verse, God is commanding us to love ourselves. Is that what he's doing? Saying, I command you to love yourself? When God says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, what, he really, what he's saying is he assumes that you already love yourself. So the verse means what we've been saying it means, that the good that you already do for yourself, do that for others. Just as you naturally seek to meet your own needs, meet the needs of others. In the way that you already care for yourself, you instinctively do that, care for others. 
we are to have the same loving regard for others that we instinctively have for ourselves. That's what he's saying. He's assuming by, by the nature of the beast, we already love ourselves. So just love others the way that you love yourself. Now, even people who, who in, engage in self-destructive behaviors and attitudes do so because in, in kind of a twisted, sad way, they actually, it actually they feel good about that. They find some kind of satisfaction in these things. And sometimes God's people, uh, while in the midst of feeling bad or suffering, have acted in loving self-sacrifice for others. So, so some people who felt very bad about their situation and about themselves in some way actually have loved people very well. So it's not saying you can't love others until you love yourself. You, you love people in the way that you want them to treat you. In verse 10, Paul really wants to be clear, so he sums up his point again. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's just so simple and so obvious. If you love someone, you will not do wrong to them. It shouldn't be revolutionary. You might wonder why Paul only states this point in the negative. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, so love fulfills the law. Well, for one thing, Paul has already given several exhortations in chapter 12 of positive love, actions, and and attitudes. And he will spend all of chapter 14 and and the first part of chapter 15 talking about ways that we love others in the positive sense, not just what we don't do. And so it's understood that Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and love does what is good and right for a neighbor are two sides of the same coin. They're inevitably linked together, although sometimes one aspect may be emphasized more than the other. So we could sum up Paul's summary, sum up Paul's summary by saying what he says in 1 Corinthians 16 1, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. If we love others, we will not be doing wrong to others. And then in verse 11, he, he changes what he's talking about slightly, but he's still talking about how do we love. And he says, besides this, you know the time. Besides the obligation to love because God's commanded it, in obedience to God's command, you know the time. Or, or the sense can also be this. It can also be translated this way. Um, and and do this, that is, love others as you love yourself, knowing the time. Now, how does the time give further motivation to love? What What time is it? Time for you to wake up from sleep. You wake? Don't hear any snoring. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In other words, what he's saying is our our final and full salvation is nearer us now. Christ's return gets nearer and nearer every day. To wake from sleep is to reject being absorbed into this present night age in which we live. It is to wake up from being conformed to the present time in the ways of this world. Most of us have had the experience of having had a hard time waking up. Might have had that this morning. 
it's it's time to get up for work or for an important appointment and you're groggy and you keep falling back asleep and hitting the alarm and you're dozing back off and you're in danger of being late or missing the appointment. You're not thinking clearly. You're under the influence of sleep and not functioning according to the needs of, of being awake. So the, the, the imagery is pretty transparent that Paul is um, using it here to say, don't be in a sin stupor. Be alert and awake for Christ's return. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to the Father. Have all the prior generations been wrong to think he was returning soon? Well, on God's timetable, the next thing to happen is for Jesus to return. I mean, he, Jesus died and rose again. He sent the Holy Spirit. He commissioned the church to do its work until Jesus comes back. So that's the next thing that we're, we're waiting for. So it's right to be motivated by the possibility that he could return in any generation. Paul is saying that in light of Christ's soon return, we need to come out from under the influence of the world's darkness. And he describes that in verse 12. He says, here's what it looks like in verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on armor of light. For the Christian, the night of this present age is expiring soon. The expiration date is getting nearer and nearer. It's an expiration date that actually means something. It's not like the, um, the serial packages you get to say this expires in such and such a date. The day is at hand. That is, the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of God's judgment of those who reject him and who uh, are indifferent to him. And the day of our full, full and final salvation. The day when we are perfected in righteousness, completely free from all sin. So how should we live in light of Christ's return? Set dates. Get all obsessed with the current world events and see what's happening and how it fulfills the scripture. Um, stockpile food. Quit our jobs. How do we live in light of Christ's soon coming? Well, he says, therefore, because this day is soon coming, let us cast off, let us throw off works of darkness. Don't keep doing these things that are in keeping with spiritual darkness. Throw them off like dirty, rancid clothes. And put on the armor or weapons of light. So the armor being the defensive, the, the weapons that could be translated as well, the offensive. Put on the armor or the weapons of light. Now, th there's a parallel passage that we'll look at, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 to 8. For you are all children of light, children of the day. So this is who you are by being in Christ, if you are in Christ. You are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Don't be sleeping in sinful behavior. But let us keep awake and sober, keep alert, living in light of what Christ is returning for. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we are 
we belong to the day, let us be sober. Not sour and dour sober, but alert, clear, clear-headed, purified in our behavior. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the armor we put on to keep living out of our identity as children of light is faith and trust in Christ. We, we trust in him. We draw our life from him. We, we rely upon him and, and love, and we love others for his sake. So it's not complicated. It's the armor of faith and of love in Christ. And for head protection, we the certain hope of our full and final salvation, so the hope of salvation coming. And it, I don't have this one on the screen, but it's, it's like also in Ephesians 5, 8 through 9. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So how do we do this? How do we walk as children of light? Paul tells us in, in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and, and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He's saying let us conduct ourselves decently as in the light of day, as the light that you are and will be in Christ. Paul lists three pairs of activities to not engage in. So don't do these things, he's saying, in order to live decently in the light, properly as in the day. The first in each pair is the visible acted out sin. The second is the more private or inward expression of the sin. Things we shouldn't have to admonish Christians not to do, but evidently we do need to admonish ourselves not to do because we still do these things. So the first thing he says is, don't be involved in orgies and drunkenness. Orgies can be translated wild parties. This is really common in the Roman Empire. Drunkenness and, and wild parties went together, somewhat like our college campuses, toga parties. So don't carouse, don't go to wild drinking parties, and don't get drunk. Drinking's not wrong, but... Clearly, drunkenness is. It makes you morally sleepy in a stupor. So much damage is done by people who get drunk. Terrible damage. Terrible damage in families, car accidents, and moral craziness. In addition, he says, don't be involved in immorality and sensuality. Immorality means don't be involved in any sex outside of male-female marriage. Don't be involved in any sex outside of male-female marriage. In our culture today, that sounds like, what are you talking about? That's weird. What's wrong with you? But we are weird if we're following God's truth. Sensuality includes all that immorality does in terms of the word, and it emphasizes sexually immoral filthiness and perversion. So today we would say don't have any sex outside of male-female marriage, and don't view porn in any, in any form. Stop excusing it. 
don't you know, aren't you, do you, are you aware at how porn fuels the sex trafficking industry? Don't be involved in it. It's not innocent, harmless fun. Maybe many of us are not involved with immorality or porn. That would be good. But how are we doing with Jesus' teaching that if you even look at someone who is not your spouse with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart? You say, well, pastor, that's pretty hard. I mean, that's, that's you know, come on, really. Well, you need to talk to Jesus about it because it's his, his rule. Do we think God is getting more tolerant of sexual immorality just because of our culture? When is the last time you got through one week without being entertained by gratuitous sex? Sexual immorality. How about getting through one day? without passive consumption of it. I wonder how many of us have hearts sensitive enough with a biblical sex ethic to recognize how much immorality we consume. It's not a mystery why so many professing Christian couples live together, sleeping together, without being married. It's not a mystery why just in the course of a few years, Homosexuality is considered absolutely normal and legitimate. It's not a mystery why in just a few years our culture has redefined marriage for the first time in history and those who oppose same-sex marriage are seen as bigoted, hateful, and akin to racists. Enough on that? For those of you who don't think you have problems with drunkenness and immorality and are glad that you're not like those who do, Paul tells us not to live in quarreling and jealousy. That's an easier subject to deal with, right? But he is counting quarreling, verbally fighting, arguing, or speaking badly to or about one another to be just as bad as wild partying, orgies, and drunkenness, and bad as sexual immorality and and sensuality. It's just as bad. It's not like a kinder, gentler form of sin. So is jealousy and envy, which is behind much quarreling. As Paul said back in 12.18 of Romans, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. In 14.19, he'll say, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Keep in mind, Paul hasn't left the theme of loving our neighbor as ourselves behind. If we love others, we won't harbor jealousy or envy toward them. We won't wrong them by tearing them down or tearing them apart verbally, since love does no wrong to a neighbor. We will not justify being hostile and bitter toward them, being irreconcilable toward them. 
We won't justify being in cold wars with them or putting a negative spin on everything they do and say. How many of you have heard of uh, St. Augustine, St. Augustine? A few of you have. He was a fourth century church father. He was a great theologian, and he got converted by reading this passage. He was... He, he had a nasty, blatantly immoral life, and his mom prayed for him for decades, and he was sitting weeping in a garden in Milan, and suddenly he heard a, a child singing, take up and read, take up and read. So he grabbed a scroll that had this passage on it, and he read it, and he came to Jesus. And he radically impacted the history of the church, made a great contribution. But maybe, maybe that's your need today. Because this text is written to people who are Christians, who are already in Christ, and who are battling these things. But maybe your battle is not without the, with, in the context of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It would be a great day for you to come to receive Jesus, just to cry out to him and ask him to forgive your sins, to give you a new life, new heart, to save you, to ensure that your sin battles are are in him and not against him and that he will surely save save you and rescue you when he returns so don't put that off if you haven't done that yet paul says in verse 14 put on the lord jesus christ he's saying that to those who already are in christ he's saying that uh to those who are are already united to christ he's he's already said earlier in, in romans that we're united to christ by faith in him so why does he say put on the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are already in Christ? This is a summary exhortation for this whole section. He's not exhorting us just to be good moral people. He's not saying that we must just follow a good code of ethics so that we can have a good life. He is saying we must resolve to live out of who we are in Christ. Yes, we are united with him. We have been immersed into Christ. But we don't just passively let our flesh, our old desires and behaviors have their way. Just saying, well, I'm in Jesus, but I can't help living this way. We don't let ourselves be conformed to this world, to this present age. We clothe ourselves with Christ. We put on his armor. It's like it says in 1 John 2, 3, verses 2 and 3. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes this way in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. As we trust in Christ and treasure him, as we read the scriptures and continually refresh our minds in his teaching and in what we are in him and have in him, in all that he is for us, we actively renounce sin and vigorously embrace righteousness. We don't make any provision for the desires of the flesh. We don't think about how we can justify following our sinful desires. We don't pre-plan how to keep accessing ways to carry out our corrupt longings. Man, my flesh so easily holds on to worthless things. My old nature does just hang on to worthless things. I encountered that this week. when I The other day I heard the 70s disco song, Rock the Boat. Yeah. By the Hughes Corporation. Yeah, there's a reason you haven't heard any more songs from them. 
And I found that uh, the song was still playing in my head while I was working on the sermon. I don't want to inflict that upon you. Fortunately, the song had faded once again from my consciousness, but now that I've mentioned it, I'm, I'm doomed to have to work it out of my head again. Had I made provision for it by downloading it on iTunes, that would have been wrong. I don't want to be found listening to Rock the Boat when Jesus comes back. If you didn't know how important it is to pray for your pastors as they prepare for their messages, now you know how desperately we need your prayers. We so often make provision for our our desires. We keep bringing up old conflicts, old junk. We hold on to things we should let go of. Well, we need to finish our our time here. So we love others as we love ourselves knowing that Christ is coming soon. And so we throw off dark deeds and attitudes, putting on the armor of what is right and good, renouncing fleshly and worldly desires, and directing and devoting our desires to Christ. Father, may we be Christ-saturated. May we think often, regularly of him. May we pray regularly to him. May we see him in all the scriptures. May we long for him. May we live for him. We cast aside everything, Father, that is what he saved us from. May we live in the light of your truth and your holiness. Thank you for your grace toward us in Jesus that rescues us from sin. Help us, Father, to overcome in the areas where we're battling it. May we be at least battling it and not making peace with it. Give us strength, Father, heart, passion for your glory, for living out who we are in Jesus and and ready for his return. We ask in his name. Amen.